Now, the gospel of Mark that we come to now is actually, chronologically, the first gospel that was written. It was actually one of the first books written in the New Testament. Not the first, but one of the first. And this man, John Mark, and I'm going to spend a little time now in introduction to the gospel of Mark. John Mark was one of the writers who was actually not an apostle. Matthew was, and of course John was. And Luke was a very close friend and an intimate of Paul the apostle. And John Mark was one who went with Paul on the first missionary journey. He was the nephew of Barnabas. Now, John was his Jewish name, while Mark was his Latin surname. Over in Acts 12, 12, we read, "...and when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying." That was when Simon Peter was released from prison. Now, actually, this is the first historical reference to him that we have in Scripture. Obviously, his mother was a wealthy and prominent Christian in the Jerusalem church, and evidently the church there met in her home. He was a nephew of Barnabas, and Paul tells us that in Colossians 4.10. And he evidently was the spiritual son of Simon Peter, because Peter writing in his first epistle in the fifth chapter, verse 13, says, "...the church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son." Now, the gospel of Mark has long been considered, by the way, Simon Peter's gospel. And I think there's evidence for that. We'll see that a little more closely in a moment. And John Mark joined Paul and Barnabas before the first missionary journey. Actually, we are told in Acts 13, 5, "...and when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Then they also had John to their minister. But this man, of course, he turned back at Perga in Pamphylia and... uh, Apparently, it was a fact that he was maybe a little yellow. Maybe he was chicken, as we would say today, using the commonplace. And we don't need, I think, to defend John Mark for turning back. He may have had an excuse. I don't know. But it looks to me like that he had failed, and at least he did make good. But Paul didn't want to take him on the second missionary journey. And Uncle Barnabas did. He was a great fellow and was easy to forgive, but not Paul. In Acts 15, verse 37 and 38, I read, "...and Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark, but Paul thought it not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work." Now, that looks to me like Paul thought he failed them. And we're told in verse 39 there in Acts 15, "...and the contention was so sharp between them, they departed asunder one from the other, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus." And far as we're concerned, sails right off the page of Scripture. 
and we know very little about his ministry in John Mark. But we do know that John Mark made good. When Paul wrote his swan song in Second Timothy, the fourth chapter, verse 11, he says, "...only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he's profitable to me for the ministry." So that John Mark made good. There's always been a question of whether he occurs somewhere in the gospel record. Well, I'll call attention to that. I personally don't think that there's any basis for that at all. And we are told that this man, Mark, got his facts of the gospel from Peter. And others say that he got the explanation of the gospel from Paul. Well, I'm willing to accept that. But I would like to now back up for just a minute in this introduction and look at this matter of the four Gospels, why four Gospels. And we have said that Matthew was written for the nation Israel, was written for the religious man. Now, Mark was written specifically for the Roman, and it was suited for the Roman mind. It was written for the strong man, and they were the ones that ruled the world and ruled it for a millennium. And the gospel of Mark is slanted in that direction, by the way. The Romans actually had subjugated the world, and they brought peace and justice and good roads and law and order and protection, but they forced peace on the world. The iron heel of Rome was on mankind, and what a price it was to pay. It was a strong dictatorship. And Dr. Gregorius expressed it like this. The Roman was to try whether human power, taking the form of law regulated by political principles of which a regard for law and justice was most conspicuous, could perfect humanity by subordinating the individual to the state, and making the state universal. That is a tremendous statement, by the way, and Culver, in his book on Daniel, has a statement. I'm not giving the exact quotation, but the sense of it is that the Roman gave to the world the kind of peace that the League of Nations and now the United Nations is trying to give to the world. But it's been tried by the Romans, and it has to be a peace that is pushed down on the world, forced on the world, and it has to be in the hands of a very strong man. And the world today, of course, is looking again for that strong man to come along. Now, the Roman was looking for that kind of a person. Rome represented active human power in the ancient world. And it did lead to dictatorship and power vested actually in one man. And that, of course, was the thing that was dangerous. That's the thing that's dangerous right now, for that's the way that we are moving today. And you find that again, and I'd like to quote Gregory in this connection, he says that the Roman was the mightiest worker, the conqueror, the organizer, and the ruler the man who is Caesar could sway the scepter of universal empire. Caesar and Caesarism were the inevitable last result 
of Roman development. And when he had been made to feel most deeply that natural justice in the hands of a human despot is a dreadful thing for sinful man, the Holy Spirit proposes to command to his acceptance Jesus of Nazareth as his sovereign and Savior, the expected deliverer of the world. And we're moving into a position today where there will come in a police state one man, and he'll be satanic, ruling over sinful man, and they'll cry out for deliverance. And the only one that will be able to deliver will be the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. When Paul wrote to the Romans, he could say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. And that power is a power that can extend mercy. And in the days when the Caesars roamed, the world longed for mercy, and all they got was power. And it was a day when no man dared resist that power. To resist it was fatal, and to flee was impossible. You could never get beyond it. And it was in that day that God sent a message to this segment of the population. And John Mark is the writer. But as we've said, he's giving Simon Peter's account of the gospel. And you'll find out that that was the position that many in the early church took. They felt that. I'd like to quote, for instance, Papias. Papias, one of the early church fathers, he recorded that John Mark got his gospel from Simon Peter. And I'm quoting him now exactly. Mark, the interpreter of Peter, wrote carefully down all that he recollected, but not according to the order of Christ speaking our work, which, by the way, is quite interesting. And Eusebius says that such a light of piety shone into the minds of those who heard Peter that they were not satisfied with once hearing nor with the unwritten doctrine that was delivered, but earnestly besought Mark that he would leave in writing for them the doctrine which they had received by preaching. And so it was. Actually, we get Simon Peter's gospel, and it's a gospel of action. Simon Peter, by the way, was that kind of a man. And so when you come to the gospel of Mark, it's a gospel of action. The Lord Jesus here lays aside his robes of royalty, those regal robes we saw in Matthew, and he girds himself with the towel of service, and he moves in, and he's a man of action. He is the king in Matthew. He is the servant in the gospel of Mark. Not man's servant. He's God's servant. And it is a gospel that Frankly, you can divide in a most unusual way. I like to divide the four Gospels according to a newspaper. For instance, Matthew carries the advertising and announcements. Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Dr. Luke carries the special features. He gives us the songs of Christmas and the parables of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son, and he majors in those. Now, John carries the editorials and the columnists. 
the different columns that are written. He has the discourse on the bread of life, the light of the world, and the upper room discourse. But John Mark carries the flaming headlines. Jesus came. That's one of his expressions. Jesus only. And then he is risen. These are headlines that you find in the gospel of Mark. And Mark expresses it by stating the words of our Lord in Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And you have here, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. And that's Isaiah 42, 1. And you find that Bernard in the Bampton Lectures way back in 1864 said of Mark, St. Peter's saying to Cornelius has been well noticed as a fit motto for this gospel. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed of the devil. Someone has put it like this. I read in a book where a man called Christ went about doing good. It's very disconcerting to me that I'm so easily satisfied with just going about. We hear a great deal today about protesting and marches, and you hear the do-gooders, both the politicians and the preachers. They are all talking about doing good, but they're not doing good. They are just going about, but not doing good. The Lord Jesus came in all the winsomeness of his humanity and in the fullness of his deity doing good. But this is only the beginning of the gospel. He died and rose again, and it wasn't until then that he said to his own, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Without the death and resurrection, these do-gooders are just do-gooders. They just don't do it, though. That's the only problem with them. And so you have in the gospel of Mark a gospel of action. The style of Mark is brief and blunt, pertinent and pithy, short and sweet. And Mark is stripped of all excess verbiage, and he goes right to the point. This is the gospel of action and accomplishment. Here Jesus is not adorned with words and narrative, but he's stripped and girded for action. And Mark is written in a very simple style. It's designed for the mass of the street. It's interesting to note that the connective and occurs more than any other word in the gospel. Now, it is said it occurs 1,331 times. I didn't count that, friends, but if you doubt that figure, you count it. 1,331 times. And very frankly, if I had turned in in college English, well, any kind of a paper with that many ands in it, I'd have been, I think, flunked for it, because they say you ought not to use that, but it's a potent word when it's used right. And very frankly, it is a word of action. It's something that means something has to follow. And that's the reason a lot of new speakers 
I've noticed young preachers, they get up and they're reaching for something to say, and then they use the word and. And the minute you say and, friend, you've got to say something else. You can't stop with that. No sentence can end with and. And leads to action always. And now Mark wrote this gospel, I believe, in Rome, evidently for the Romans. And as we've said, they were the kind of people that wanted one of action. The question was, is Jesus able to do it? Now, you'll notice here at the very beginning, there's no genealogy. Well, now, why wouldn't you have a genealogy? Well, I think that that's quite obvious. Why you do not have a genealogy? In Matthew, you have one. A king must have a genealogy. But a servant needs references, not a birth certificate. The question is, can he do the job? And we're going to see that in this gospel. That's the way that he's presented. Now, probably, I ought to say just a word about the notes that I have, and I hope you'll send for them. I have divided the gospel of Mark in a way that's different from any other division. It's filled with miracles, more miracles than any other And you find out, and I'd like to give you the outline briefly. John introduces the servant. God the Father identifies the servant. The temptation initiates the servant. And works and words illustrate. And you have the miracles divided in miracles of healing, physical. Miracles of nature, natural miracles. The casting out of demons, spiritual miracles and then raised from the dead supernatural. You have these four major divisions of miracles. And then you have a few parables, not many, and then many other teachings and incidents. And I've divided this gospel in that way, rather than attempting to go through in a logical way and divide each chapter. Now we find here in chapter 1, and we probably should just get our foot in the door after all, John announces and baptizes Jesus. And Jesus is approved by the Father, tempted by Satan, and he begins his ministry in Galilee. He calls four disciples, he casts out demons, he heals Peter's wife's mother, and he prays, and then he heals the leper. And that apparently was one day's job, all of that he did there, beginning yonder in Galilee. Now, there's probably more content in this first chapter of Mark than any other chapter in the Bible. You can compare it with Genesis 1. And it covers the ministry of John the Baptist after going back to the prophecies of Isaiah and Malachi. It takes in the first year's ministry of Jesus follows him through a busy Sabbath day. And it concludes with a mighty work of cleansing the leper. And in spite of the pressure of a busy life, Jesus took time out to pray. This chapter of crowded content is made striking by the absence of that genealogy, which is prominent in Matthew. But we've already said why. Mark contains his references. It's not a question as to his ancestors. It's rather his actions. Can he do the job? Jehovah's servant is marked out here by his accomplishments. Besides this, the Romans or other outsiders 
would not be concerned with the genealogy of Jesus, which runs back to Abraham. And that's the reason the gospel of Matthew is not really the gospel to hand out to individual for the first time. That genealogy is meaningless, of course. Now, will you note this? We are going to look upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to behold him here. And as Dr. A.J. Gordon put it, the look saves, but the gaze sanctifies. Now, we have the prophecies concerning the coming of John the Baptist here in the first three verses. And I'm reading now. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, and this is Isaiah, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. This is the beginning of the gospel. Now, this is not the beginning of either John or Jesus, by the way, and it's not the beginning that you have in Genesis or in the gospel of John. This is the beginning of the gospel. This is when the Lord Jesus came to this earth and died upon a cross and rose again. That, my friend, is the gospel. And these beginnings tell of his coming into the world, the beginning of his public ministry. And we need to note that because it's very important. Now, there are very few quotations from prophecy in the Gospel of Mark, actually. He's writing to the Romans. They knew very little about the prophetic scriptures, and therefore he does not quote but about two references, but he opens with them. And he does not give his genealogy, and it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to spend just a moment there today at that expression. There actually in Scripture are three beginnings. That first beginning is not in Genesis, but in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That goes back to a dateless beginning, a beginning before all time. It's uh, logical rather than chronological, because in my thinking, I have to put down my peg somewhere in the past in order to take off. If there's an airplane in the air, I assume that there's an airport somewhere. I may not know where it is, don't know where it came from, but I have to assume it took off somewhere. So that when you come into a universe, as I did quite a few years ago, and look around me, I know somewhere it took off. And I know that somewhere there is a God. And I know somewhere that there is this one, the Lord Jesus. Now, what about the beginning? Well, I don't know. I can't answer that. He comes out of eternity to meet us. But I just have to put on the pegs back there somewhere where he does meet us. Far back as I can think, that is the airport. He took off. I don't know where or how. But the very fact that he existed means he took off somewhere. Now, we have a second beginning, and that's actually the one in Genesis. And that's when you move into time. That began at some time in the past. I do not know when. I do not think anyone does. They are attempting to date this universe. 
I remember when I was in school, I think it went to two million years. Then I think it advanced to 200 million years. And now it's gone to two billion years. And since they've made the trip to the moon and brought back those rocks, why, they've come to the conclusion it's now three billions of years. And I have a notion if they could get out a little farther, get a few rocks from Mars, they might think it's five billion years. And the chances are it's older than that. It may be several trillion years old. It could be really squillions of years old. After all, our God is a God of eternity, and he's not pushed for time. I mean, after all, he's been around a long time, so is the universe. A man just hadn't been around very long. He's the Johnny-come-lately on the scene, and we don't seem to know too much about our universe. I think someday when we get in his presence and we really begin to know then, even as we're known, and now we see through a glass darkly and then face to face, I think we'll marvel at our stupidity and our ignorance and how little we really did know and that what is called wisdom today actually is foolishness with God and that because we don't have any kind of thought patterns to fit God's thoughts onto, why the wisdom of God seems like it's foolishness to man, you see. Now, there's another beginning, and that's called the beginning of the gospel. John, in his first epistle, says, "...that which was from the beginning." Well, that's what Mark's talking about here, the beginning of the gospel. And both John and Mark take us to the beginning of his ministry. And what you have here is the beginning of the gospel. So that don't stop with the teachings of Jesus or stop with the miracles of Jesus and say this is the gospel. His teachings, as we saw in the book of Exodus, is not the gospel. And we quoted from a president of a seminary here in California that made the statement, he's supposed to be conservative, but he's certainly not, to say that the teachings of Jesus, if followed, that is what we need to do. And even man who denies deity can follow his teachings and bring peace in the world. I challenge that statement, of course. Now, the beginning of the gospel, we need to keep that before us. I think, frankly, that Paul and John Mark were very good friends now. And John Mark had probably seen the epistle to the Romans and got the facts of the gospel from Simon Peter, but he got the interpretation of the gospel from Paul. And he says, now, I want to go back and give you the facts of the gospel. That is, these things that have to do with the coming of Christ into the world and his experience here for three years in a public ministry. That is the beginning of the gospel. We need to keep that before us. Now, this was according to the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before my face. Now, that was John the Baptist. Now, I begin reading here at verse 3, "...the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight." Now, that was John. And Mark says that the coming of John was the fulfillment of that. 
And our translation reads, John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And I'd like to change that because it needs to be changed, friends, in order that we can get at the meaning that is here. And the meaning, I think, is very important for us to see. Now, I'll read it like this. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching the baptism of repentance unto the remission of sins. That's very important to see. Now, he did not baptize for the remission of sins. It was unto the remission of sins. His ministry was preparatory. It was preparing them for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. I think that's very, very important for us to see, that it's preparing, if you please, preparing them for the coming of the Lord Jesus. And that was his preaching, and that was his baptizing, and that was the purpose of it. It was a preparation for the coming of Christ into the world. Now, verse 5, "...there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins." And John was clothed with camel's hair, with a girdle of a skin about his loins. He did eat locusts and wild honey. Now, we'll have occasion to refer to John the Baptist again. But he was remarkable, not only in his message, but he was remarkable in his dress, and he was remarkable in his diet. This man was one that had been set aside for this ministry. He was of the order of the priests. He was a Levite, and he should probably have been ministering in the temple in Jerusalem. But God has called him now as a prophet, and he's out there in the wilderness, and people went to him. We today like to put a church in a location where people live or where people congregate or where they can come. The church should be accessible, we feel, John didn't work on that theory at all. He was way out yonder in the wilderness, and the multitudes went to him. And now we are told he preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy. Now notice that I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. Now that reveals something of how remarkable this man really was, this man John. And this man stirred the multitudes, as we've seen. And the very wonderful thing was that John was a strange and strong man, but his was a solo voice. His dress and diet were different. And then note his humility here. He was an humble man. There's coming one greater than I am. And now we read here, I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, that is the great distinction between the two. The real baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
ritual baptism is by water. And I personally believe it's very important today because it's a testimony, as we've said before. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we said that the reason that the Lord Jesus was baptized was actually to identify himself with mankind. And we find here, and I'm reading now verse 9, "...it came to pass in those days that Jesus came." Notice that headline, Jesus came. What a thrill. And he's coming someday. That's another wonderful headline. And one day it'll be true, Jesus came. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. The Lord Jesus came from the obscurity of 30 years of quiet training in little Nazareth. And you'll find that he came now and identifies himself with the human family in his baptism. It's identification with the human family. Remember, he told John, suffer it so now. John didn't want to baptize him, as you know. Now you'll notice the name Jesus is used here. Jesus came. And we'll find it's the common name that's used in this gospel here. It's more frequently used in Mark than any other name. Now, here in verses 10 and 11, you have the Trinity brought together in a very definite way. And straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, you have the Lord Jesus here, the second person of the Godhead. And the Spirit of God comes like a dove upon him. That's the third person. And a voice out of heaven, the Father, says, This is my beloved Son, the first person of the Godhead. The Trinity is brought to our attention. And this, by the way, is heaven's seal upon the person and the dedication of Jesus. Now, will you notice the thing that happens is happening fast here. He is the servant. John the Baptist here is the one that introduces him. And now God the Father identifies him and puts his seal upon him. Now, the temptation will initiate him. Now, notice verse 12. And immediately... The Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. Now, I would have you note that, that the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. That is a word of fierceness and seriousness, that the Spirit of God just, as it were, moved him right out into the wilderness, that he might be tempted. This is something that is very important for us to see. And we find here that the question is, can he do the job? Other men have failed. They couldn't stand up under temptation. Adam didn't make it. He fell. Noah actually got through the flood, and then he fell miserably upon his face. And then Abraham, we saw that Abraham failed, and Moses did wasn't even permitted to enter the promised land. And yet 
He led the children of Israel out of Egypt. And poor David failed. Now, the temptation, therefore, initiates him into his work. And now will you notice here verse 13. And he was there in the wilderness forty days. Now, we do not have the details given that you have in Matthew and in Luke. But all we're told here that he was in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan. And he was tempted during the whole forty days. The impression some people seem to get is that he fasted forty days, and then Satan tempted My friend, he was tempting him all the time. Forty days it went on. And he was tempted of Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered unto him. Now, again, I'd like to correct something. The idea is that he was there tempted of Satan and that the wild beasts more or less contributed to the temptation. That's not true. What Mark is saying here was with the wild beasts and the angels, and they both ministered to him. That is, the creation beneath him as man ministered to him. And that's the reason God created these creatures. If you remember Genesis, everything was a preparation to make a home for man. And friends, it's no accident that on this earth, as far as we know, it's the only place that there is mankind. And to try to say today, because in the other galactic systems you have the same situation, that you must have man there. That is highly presumptive to make a statement like that. You don't know a thing, friends. And far as we know, this is the only habitable place for creatures such as we are today. We have to have air to breathe and water to drink and food to eat, and we need an environment. And God gave man a good ecology, and it's man that's ruining that. And I'm glad to be able to use that word because it's become very popular in our day. I'm sure many of us didn't know what it was. I sensed it came from oikos, which means house, and it has to do with the philosophy of your home, where you live. And it has to do, we say, of our environment. And it could have something to do with the payments you make on your house, by the way. It could be that just as easily as far as the Greek word is concerned. Now, the beast below ministered to the Lord Jesus after the temptation, and the angels above him ministered to him. And that's what John Mark is saying here. Now... After the temptation, we find that the Lord Jesus now begins to move. And what we have here is the fact that he's beginning now a ministry, and we find that works and words illustrate the servant. And we see him now beginning a ministry that will take him actually up to the cross. Now let me read verse 14. Now, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, actually, of the kingdom is not in the better manuscripts. And I personally think it should be preaching the gospel of God and saying, "...the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand 
Repent ye and believe the gospel. Now, I probably need to pause here for a moment to make this statement. And we find here that, again, Jesus came. Now, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came in the Galilee. He begins his ministry now. And preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is at hand, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, over in Matthew, it was the kingdom of heaven. Did he use both terms? And he did. Is there a distinction between the two? There is. And there also is an overlapping. The kingdom of heaven is God's rule over the earth. The kingdom of God includes his entire universe, even beyond the bounds of this earth. So the kingdom of heaven is in the kingdom of God. The fact of the matter is, Matthew is applying it specifically to this earth. And Mark is reaching out and seeing a wider area here that the kingdom of God would be the all-embracing universe of God, including all of his creatures. The kingdom of God is at hand, and I think they can be used in a synonymous way. Therefore, as it relates to the earth, it can be said it's the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God would reach beyond the earth. The kingdom of heaven, as I understand it, is just the reign of the heavens over the earth. And now his message is the same as John's was, as we saw in Matthew, "...repent ye and believe the gospel." But now we have this matter of faith. And I believe that today that's actually been turned around, that faith comes before repentance. When you turn to Christ, you'll turn from something. You turn to Christ in faith. And when you turn to him in faith, you turn from something. And that turning from something is repentance. If there is not that turning from something, apparently there was not that turning to. And you can be sure of one thing, if there was that turning to Christ, you're going to see in the life a turning from something. So you do not have a contradiction here at all. They are to believe now in the gospel. That is the thing that is important. Now, we have here not a genealogy, but the credentials of Christ. This gospel is slanted to the Romans. They were men of action. They ruled the world. This gospel is addressed to the man of power. The first gospel is addressed to the religious man. This one to the strong man. And then Luke is addressed to the thinking man. And then John is addressed, as we shall see, to the wretched man, the one that needs salvation. Now, as we come here to verse 16, our Lord began his ministry in Galilee. And we find now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I'll make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he'd gone a little farther thence, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway... He called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship 
with the hired servants and went after him. Now, this is not the first time that he's called them, by the way. If you go back over to the Gospel of John, you will find out that when he went up to Jerusalem, that was the first time that he met them. And actually, that was a general call. It was very informal and casual. They won't know where do you dwell. John the Baptist had marked him out, and some of the disciples of John the Baptist now followed the Lord Jesus. But they didn't stay with him, and he didn't ask them to at this time. But now as he begins his ministry, we find that they've gone back to their nets there in Galilee, And now he goes along the sea, and he calls them to discipleship, that is, to be fishers of men. But we'll find that, again, they went back to their fishing. We'll find that when we get to the Gospel of Luke in the fifth chapter. Then you have a final call, and that we'll come to in this Gospel. It'll be a call to apostleship. Now, it's recorded in this Gospel And again, in Matthew 10 and in Luke 6, I called attention to this when we went through Matthew. Actually, three calls. And you will remember, I'm sure, that at the time that they went back to fishing, when Simon Peter saw him, why, he said, "'Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man.'" In other words, what Simon Peter's really saying is, why don't you go and get somebody else? Let me alone because I failed you so. I'm such a sinful man. But our Lord didn't give him up, and thank God for that. Now, this is actually the second call of these men. And now will you note, they leave their nets, they follow him, and they will be returning. They go with him now for a while. Now, will you notice verse 21? And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. Now, Mark brings us here in this section just actually a typical day in the ministry of Jesus. And it was a busy day. And he was certainly busy, and actually it was the Sabbath day. And you will recall that when they questioned him, these religious leaders, about doing what he did on the Sabbath day, he could make it very clear, I must be about my father's business, and my father worketh hitherto, and I work. So we find out here his was not an eight-hour day. He that keepeth Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, will you notice, he begins in Capernaum, verse 21, "...and they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught." Now, that was in the morning. The time is the Sabbath. It is morning. "...and he entered into the synagogue and taught." And the center was not actually the center of a vital religion in that day. The place is Capernaum. Now, the best I can tell from the Gospels is that when he left Nazareth and his own people would not receive him, he went down to Capernaum and he made that his headquarters and it continued his headquarters all during his earthly ministry. Now, will you notice verse 22? And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. 
Now, here we have the potency of truth and the manner of a man, and then see the effect of it. My criticism today of the church and of the ministry is that we do not speak with authority. And the reason that the ministry does not speak with authority, that we've lost our faith. And when I say we, I do not mean I have by any means, but I'm saying now as a class, the ministry today does not attempt to preach and teach the Word of God. There is a departure today. There's a radical departure. There is between the pulpit and the Word of God a tremendous bifurcation. You talk about a gap, a generation gap. Well, here you have a Bible gap. And in our Lord's day, as I've indicated, the synagogue had nothing vital in that day. And as a result, why, when our Lord came, what a difference there was in his message. Now they were astonished at his doctrine. Verse 23, And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Now we have here the example, and this is the first miracle that our Lord performed as far as the gospel of Mark is concerned. And it's in the spiritual realm. Only God is in control in the spiritual realm. This is the manifestation of demonism. Now, there was that in the Roman Empire, and there's a great deal of historical evidence that it was actually rampant in the entire Roman Empire at this particular time, a manifestation of demonism. And the only way to meet it, the only way that it could be met, is by the Lord Jesus. He alone was able to move in this realm. And that's the reason Mark gives this as the first miracle. He brings this one that he performed and presents it as the first. Because, frankly, if he has power in this realm, there are two things that are implied. First, he'd have power in any realm. And second, only God could do this. And this was part of his credential, you see. He had authority. He had power. He taught as one that had authority. And he demonstrated that he had power. This is really a tremendous thing. Now, I do not need to labor this point, because if you are aware of what's taking place in our contemporary culture today, you recognize that Satan worship has become very prominent. And there are certain things happening today in the realm of the occult, that can only be explained on the basis that it is satanic and that it is supernatural. You cannot explain reasonably why young people today will leave homes where they are loved and don't buy all of this propaganda that's being given out. Right now, the young people have a state of mind of self-pity. If you listen to them, you'll discover that. I talked to them a great deal, and it's self-pity that they manifest. If you listen to them, they sure feel sorry for themselves that they don't have freedom and they don't have this. Never has a generation of young people had what this generation has, and they're crying. 
Now, when I was a kid, they would not let me cry. My dad would have taken me to the woodshed if I'd attempt to cry. And I can remember as a kid having to chop cotton and pick cotton. And I don't mean to cry myself, but friends, it wasn't easy. But I didn't dare cry in that day. It was assumed that that's what I should do. And I hated that chopping cotton, friends. That's a job you can have, and there's not but one thing worse than chopping cotton, and that's to pick the stuff. Oh, I didn't like that, but that's what you had to do. Now, these young people today have everything, and yet you see this self-pity. Now they're trying everything. They've tried dope. They try everything. Well, Satan worship has become very prominent, and there's a great deal going on today in the occult. It's unbelievable that a group of young people from good homes would join a hippie band and then go out and murder. That seems unbelievable. That's satanic, friends. And I'm not sure but what we're going to see actual demon possession if this continues. That is, it'll be manifested like that. And, Christian friend, only one way to deal with it, and that's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can control that. That's the first miracle that's given to us here. Now, they said to the Lord Jesus, "'Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee, who thou art, the Holy One of God.'" Now, verse 25, "...and Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him." Now, notice he's demonstrated in two realms, in that of teaching. He spoke as one having authority, power, friends. And here, in the realm of miracles, why they could not understand it. He has authority that they could not at all understand. Power in two realms, you see. Now, verse 28, "...and immediately his fame spread abroad." throughout all the region round about Galilee. Now, that's the area around the Sea of Galilee. Now, we're given another incident, and this evidently took place sometime in the afternoon. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they tell him of her. Now, she's not called a mother-in-law. She's called Simon's wife's mother. My mother-in-law used to call my attention to that, that that was the nice way of saying it, and I'm sure it was. Verse 31, And he came and took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her. She ministered unto them. Now, this is another miracle already, and it took place that same day. And then verse 32, And at even now... We've come through the day, and it's in the evening. When the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with demons. Now, Mark's going to do the same thing that Matthew did. Call your attention to the fact that we have only very few incidents of him healing, that literally he healed thousands of people, but only a few are given as incidents to them. And we're told here 
They brought unto him all that were diseased, them that were possessed with demons, and all the city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many that were sick of divers' diseases, and cast out many demons, and suffered not the demons to speak, because they knew him. The very interesting thing here is the demon world, they recognize him. And we're told that they believe. And yet they're not saved, of course. Now, we find that what happened, that we go through a day with him, and he's very busy. Now we're told in verse 35, "...and in the morning, rising up a great while before day." Now, you'd think after a busy Sabbath day that he'd sleep in that morning. Well, he didn't do it. I know a lot of preachers take off Monday. They want to rest after a busy Sunday. But here you have that, and you'd think that he would rest. But no, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, for therefore came I forth. Now, this is the beginning of the gospel, you see. He's now, by his teaching, preparing them for that which is salvation. That is, his death and his resurrection. His teaching will not save you, friend. It is what he did for us on the cross. Now, we find that he wants to cover that entire territory in his three years' ministry. Verse 39, And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out demons. Now, it's well to note that, that there was a great manifestation of demon power at this time. The fact of the matter is that we have three periods during the time of Moses, during the time of Elijah, and now during the time of our Lord on earth. Now we come here to the last miracle in this chapter. And again, these are hard cases, and they're all different. This is a leper. Leprosy was not incurable, as we shall see in Leviticus, but it was one of those diseases that was a killer. But it doesn't mean it was incurable. Verse 40, And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus, moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and touched him, and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. Now, you will recall that back in Matthew, that I called attention to the psychological side of this miracle, that our Lord touched him. Well, you didn't touch a leper, and he hadn't been touched in many years. In fact, he hadn't been able to touch anyone. I imagine his family brought out the food and drink for him and left it, and then they retired, and he came up and got it. He probably could wave at them, but he could never come to them again, never hold them in his arms. They could never touch him. Well, now the Lord touches this man, and he cleans him, and he says, "'I will be thou clean.'" Verse 42, "'And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. And he straightly charged him, and forthwith sent him away, and saith unto him, 
see thou say nothing to any man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priests, and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Now, the cleansing of the leper was to follow the Mosaic ritual. Our Lord never really broke the Mosaic law. Now, verse 45, But he went out and began to publish it much, and to blaze abroad the matter. Now, this man, instead of keeping quiet about it, he went out and published it. Well, if you want to get a thing out, why, you publish it. And if you want to make it known, why, just put it in the paper or get it on radio or something. Well, that's what this man did, and to blaze abroad. And that means to set a forest fire or set something on fire. And friends, if you are having trouble getting your neighbors to listen to you, why, you just set your place on fire and the whole neighborhood will come around you. I can assure you that. Well, that's exactly what happened here. Years ago, I told a preacher over in Prescott, Arizona there, the pastor of the First Baptist Church, and I was holding meetings. And that Sunday morning, I just casually made the remark. I said, if you want to get a crowd here this week, all week, set the place on fire. And do you know when I was preaching there that night, why, this man got up and he walked to the back out in the Sunday school department. He came in and he just pushed me aside. And he said, friends, the church is on fire. And he asked them to file out, and they did it very orderly. And by that time, you could hear the sirens and the fire engines were coming. And I want to tell you, we did have a good crowd that Sunday night, but I'm sure we wouldn't have had Monday night. But the meeting had been on the back page of the paper on Saturday, but we were on the front page on Monday that the First Baptist Church is on fire, that we were still having meetings there. And did you know that we had a crowd there that week? So I got so I recommend to every preacher where a whole meetings that they set the place on fire. That's one way to get a crowd. Now, this fellow did that, and he disobeyed our Lord. I preached for a preacher in Texas years ago. I'd go over and preach for him after I preached for myself. He was a black man and a very wonderful man, by the way. And I got over one evening before he finished preaching, and I want to tell you, he said the wisest thing I've ever heard about that. He was preaching on this. He says the Lord told him not to tell anybody, and he told everybody. And he says he tells us to tell everybody, and we tell nobody. Well, I thought that was good. And I want to say, friends, that that disobedience of this man, I like it lots better than our disobedience today. We're told to tell everybody, and we tell nobody. Well, that brings us to the conclusion of this chapter. Believe me, our Lord's busy, is he not?